Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Word with Web. I'm Eric, and I'm here with Pastor Richard. And I'm Richard over here with Eric. Yeah, and uh, we've got a, a fun episode planned for today, a fun topic. This is one of those topics that... Um, you know, maybe previously in growing up and everything, I hadn't really thought about um, because mainly because in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's mind, it's a topic that most seems to contradict with what we know in modern science. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of tough to wrestle with because we're not really sure how to make sense of it. I know in my church, um, we basically rejected the science but in each 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 case, I think the paradigm we both held, even though we were at opposite sides of the fence, was that science and religion inherently contradict each other. And that's something I I hear us say a lot around here is that science and in the Bible do not contradict. Um, and so we're going to dig in a little bit more into how to make sense of all this and what is what is God saying in Genesis one and two. Yeah. Um, and how does that really impact our faith. And so, um, I'm excited for this topic because it's one of my favorite ones to kind of dig into. So, um, you ready to get, get started? I am so ready. Okay. So, if we're in uh, Genesis 1, mm-hmm. um, let's just start right at the beginning. We're yeah, Genesis yeah. 1 and 2, verses mm-hmm. 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, help me understand what's going on there because as you, as you start to read this narrative, there appears to be Something going on before mm-hmm. creating begins, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's these waters, there's this uh, chaos, there's God's spirit hovering over. Um, what's what's going on there? Um, most ancient Middle Eastern cultures believed in sort of three spaces or realms um, that existence was part of. There was God's space, there was human space, and then there was kind of a no man's land or a chaos space. And chaos was represented by different things. In this particular story, it's represented by water that has no definition. It's just chaos. And this is a uh, an understanding that's not unique to any one religion or people group. It, it's that was kind of a normal understanding of the world mm-hmm. in ancient times. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and so, in this first passage. Is there something before the creation begins? Is 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 that there? Is that something that that we can read into these first two verses? That before God mm-hmm. starts the six days of creation, there's mm-hmm. something. Yeah, and the something is chaos, um, which is is fascinating because often um, there's a doctrine that God created everything out of nothing, but in the Hebrew mind, that nothing is a something, and it's the chaos. So God creates order out of chaos. That's how the Hebrew mind would say it. Um, and, and and so in that way, God is shaping creation out of a material, but it's a material that has no definition, hence chaos. What was chaos to ancient people? Like, why is, why is this ordering of the world needed in their minds or why 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 was this something that was addressed in the mm-hmm. creation narrative why is god value order oh this is this is very very important um there are two signs in the bible for chaos and one is the waters this is the one we've encountered in genesis 1 in genesis 2 it's the wilderness or the wasteland it is the place that does not produce life in fact death is there 
And you think of it very practically, uh, the Israelites, for example, were not a seafaring people. And so for them, the sea was just the place you went and died. And so that was a perfect symbol for them for chaos. This doesn't produce life here. In fact, it challenges life. And the other, um, again, in that area was the wasteland or the wilderness. There were places of total desert that, um, again, it would challenge life. And if you just went there without resources, you died. So those are great symbols of chaos. Okay, so so right away, even before God creates human beings, mm-hmm. the process of ordering things is mm-hmm. the process of creating life. Yep, or we call it order out of chaos, definition out of chaos. Okay. For example, uh, the first definition out of chaos, well, there's several, but I'll just give you one. I don't know if this is the first. Um is when land is separated from the sea. Now we have a boundary. Now we have definition. Now we have, uh, to a certain extent, some order. Mm-hmm. Okay, now as we get into Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is the one where we've got the six days of creation, mm-hmm. um, and then Genesis 2 kind of takes another route to creation. Mm-hmm. Maybe we start off just in Genesis 1 yep. with the mm-hmm. six days of creation. Yeah. Um, I always grew up understanding, I don't know if it was specifically taught, but understanding those were just six literal days of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, once you get into science classes in in uh, in high school or whatever it is, mm-hmm. there's a different explanation of how, how everything came into being. Yeah. How do you understand the six days of creation? Mm-hmm kind of getting into all the science-y part of it. Mm-hmm. Do you understand them to be literal six days and what's going on in there? Mm-hmm. I think that what God's word tells me is it's not six literal days. Um, notice that I don't believe it's six literal days because that's impossible. God can do whatever he wants. But I think the Bible itself tells me something else is going on. A part of it, we'll just break it way down to the word day. In Hebrew, it's yom. And yom can mean a day, it can also mean a period of time, it can also mean an eon or aeon. Um, So um, it could mean six eons, Uh, it could mean six 24-hour days, it could mean six seasons, although they use a different word for uh, seasons as in the four seasons, Um, or six just periods of of time of of any definition. So so we have some flexibility with the word itself. the other is also that if you begin to read around in ancient Middle Eastern history, uh, there's places where Genesis 1 is riffing off of other creation stories and sometimes poking at them. So it's, 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 it's basically um, what we call a protest literature or polemic literature. Um, and there's little hints that even tell us when this thing might have been inspired by God to be written. Um, there's one where they're talking about the the stars and all and, and the the great moon and and I mean the, the the greater light and the lesser light. And then there's this throwaway sentence where it says, "Oh yeah, and the stars, God made them too." Well, in the ancient Middle East, the stars were gods themselves. So for somebody to write a a half sentence about the stars as an afterthought would be regarded by every other religion in that time as a huge insult. Um, and so we think this is the time uh, when Israel was in exile to the Babylonians, and they worshipped the star gods, 
and um, actually believed their victory over Israel was because of these gods. And so all of a sudden, God inspires you know this what you know the, the real story of creation where it's no the gods did not defeat Israel God actually is lord over these gods in fact made them and he carried them into Israel uh Israel, he carried Israel into Babylon and so uh, it's a way of rewriting the story but there's an awareness of another story um the same thing would be true just in in if you look at the rhythms this is a piece of poetry um, there are repeated phrases um, like, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, second day, third day, etc. And then God saw what he had made, and it was good. And we can imagine these refrains being said by a group of people, or sung, uh, while the leader then told the story. And then we have at the very end a surprise, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But, and this is in very stark contrast to other creation stories at the same time. Okay, so if let's rewind a little bit. Yeah. If if someone were to is there a a big issue if someone are, is to believe it's six literal days versus not or is that just not even the point or not even does it matter? No, I, it, I feel like I feel mm-hmm. like this is a conversation that yeah, a lot of people yeah. have mm-hmm. maybe a discussion that people fight over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Does it does it matter all that much whether it's six literal days or not when the when you're saying the point is mm-hmm. um, to be it's it's a poem that's addressing mm-hmm. and speaking to a specific narrative that maybe mm-hmm. we're a little removed from mm-hmm. yeah I would say in order for the story to work it does not matter um, where it matters is when we use this as a polemic against science in a way that it was never designed to be. But it doesn't matter for the story in and of itself. Um, and, and so if I'm telling the story, what I want people to hear is this rhythm where God is building stuff and he likes what he's building. And it's very orderly. And that is so different than almost every other creation story in the, in the Middle Eastern culture. And regardless of the how, mm-hmm. The point still is that God created. Yep. It's the who and the why are the main thing. Um, I would actually say the story is utterly uninterested in the how and even tells you so by its poetic way of being written. Um, we can tell that this is either a, a, a worship song or it's a responsive reading or it's a poem at the very least. And usually when you write things that way, you're kind of saying rather loudly, this is a symbol. Mm. Um, last thing I checked, I've never seen a high school uh, history textbook written in poetry. Yeah. Is that a cultural thing? Is that like, do we care about that more, the how, more than the original readers? Or is that just um, the style? Or, or is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, would they not have even been asking those same questions that we we are today? I would say Western culture cares, cares deeply about the how. And that's because our way of thinking about human experience is based on cause and effect. Everything has to be reducible to cause and effect. Uh, That's why we have scientific method, because we want to figure out the causes for the effects we observe. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, We wouldn't have skyscrapers if we didn't have cause and effect. But there are some places where it doesn't work. Uh, History actually is a place where it doesn't, 
Uh, and the more and more we we study secular history, the more we find that that's a tricky tool to use for it. Um, the other, which I think has now been successfully challenged, is the myth of objective truth. Um, there is a sense in the West that we could get at an event or a thing as it really is without any filtering, so we called it objective. Uh, I think we now know better, and the Bible has always said that we look at everything through the lenses of our advantage. Um, and, and so everybody, so we always look at things through sort of our social conditioning, and then beyond that, also, you know, what, you know, what's in it for me? Uh, which perspective is going to be my best to the, to the best advantage of, of of me? You know, mm-hmm. so um, so I would say cause and effect and the myth that we could actually get at an unbiased truth uh, apart from ourselves um, caused people to to uh, basically fight over the how. So you'd mentioned that the that Genesis one does some speaking to the creation myths of the surrounding cultures. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, specifically with the, the star gods. Mm-hmm. Is there anywhere else that you see in, in Genesis 1 that's speaking to any of those and what are those myths? Mm-hmm. And then also, are are they using the same sort of writing style about the trying to cre- mm-hmm. explain more of the who and the why mm-hmm. rather than the how? I would say so. I, um, I think most of it is poetry. Uh, the one that's probably the most famous is the Babylonian creation story. And this is, is from the Hammurabi Codex. It's called the Gilgamesh Epic. Um, a lot of people have read it in high school or, or college if they were doing comparative religions or just even ancient literature, some of the oldest literature we have. In it, there's two deities, um, Marduk and Tiamat, their husband and wife. They have, to put it politely, an extremely rocky marriage. Um, And Marduk would probably be hauled off by the police for domestic violence. Not a good husband. Um, Well, and and you can tell things have degenerated so badly between the two of them, they have armies to protect themselves from each other. This is a bad marriage. Well, one day things just get really nasty, and so they send their armies after each other. And big, huge battle, and Marduk wins, uh, and then he takes a sword, and he runs it right through Tiamat's gut, and outspills all her entrails, and behold, creation! So in that story, creation is a result of domestic violence, especially of the corpse of the woman, as the woman is the loser in this epic myth. Chaos. Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a chaotic chaotic story. Yeah, so the story creates chaos rather than, than create something from chaos. Well, then what Marduk does is consolidate the two armies into one, except that um, Tiamat's general, whose name is Kingu, remember these are all deities, complains because... Um, his army doesn't like what they've been assigned to do. Well, we already know what Marduk's MO is with things that are challenging. He grabs his sword out and runs it right through Kingu. And out comes, with all his entrails and guts, human beings. And then um, Marduk says, ah, human beings can do the things that, that Tiamat's army don't, doesn't want to do. And we'll make them do all the things that we don't want to do. So all of a sudden, human beings turn out to be slaves to the gods who do the things gods don't want to do. So there, there's a, a saying I came across somewhere, stories that tell you where you came from also tell you who you are. So here we have an epic story of creation 
that creates chaos, and out of the chaos uh, comes creation. It's, in other words, it's a product of chaos rather than a product of order. The other is, epically, the man wins. And, and not only that, the man with the most power wins. So imagine how you organize a society around power, especially male power. And then the third thing is human beings were created to do what those in power don't want to do, in this case, the gods. So then, once again, in an empire, slavery just seems to be part of the natural order of things. In fact, it's God-ordained. So, you know, and, and into this empire, the Babylonian empire, um, the Babylonians are trying to assimilate the, the, the people of Israel into this worldview. So how do you stand against this? Well, the way God does it is he inspires some, you know, spicy Hebrew to write a different story. And in this story, there's chaos already, and God separates the chaos from, um, you know, and, and creates land. So rather, where Tiamat and Marduk are chaos makers, um, God is an order maker who, who limits the chaos. And... Okay, so I've got a couple questions that came out of that. You that bet, was, that you was bet. interesting. The, the first is mm -hmm. that we have to oftentimes talk about Jesus as being one who who flips things, the, the kind of the world upside down, mm -hmm. and the first become last, and right, the, the right. greatest is the one who serves the most rather mm -hmm. than the one mm -hmm. who yeah. like forces the most power. Yeah. Um, seems like right from Genesis one mm -hmm. that like turning or changing of mm -hmm. this, um, the world on its head yeah, yeah. is beginning right in the creation narrative, which I, which I didn't even realize. But also then in Genesis 28, mm -hmm. it says God created man, man in his image. Mm -hmm. So if, if where, how did you say that? The creation narrative tells us who we are. Yeah. Whereas in the Babylonian narrative, you're, um, you know, you're the servant of, well, of the gods and your your mm -hmm. it's it's all about power. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, does that connect it all to the idea of being made in the image of God? Mm -hmm. And how so? How does what is mm -hmm. what does that say about who we are mm -hmm. that's different than all these other narratives? Oh, this is gigantic. Once again, I'm I'm just gonna say it till we're sick of it. Stories that uh tell us where we came from also tell us who we are. So the world of the Babylonians is a world of power and hierarchy. It's also a world of male power and hierarchy. Because right at the get-go, a woman loses. And as she falls apart, creation comes from her. So it's also a world where chaos is an instrument um, to further the will of the gods. You know, And, and then the third thing is a... a, a a society organized around the idea that humans are slaves of the gods, naturally those slaves fit in right into the empire. So to make it more metaphorical, human beings are designed to be slaves to those who are in power, and they will always be guys. Um, that's the story that, that the Gilgamesh epic tells. Okay, what is the story that, that, the, that the, the, uh, the Hebrew creation story tells? that we are created intentionally, on purpose, in a very orderly manner where chaos, rather than be created, is limited. 
And order comes out of that. And not only that, when the deity, the God who makes creation, looks at it, he likes what he sees. And then when we get to human beings they, themselves, it slows way down. And, 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 and three times we are told we are made male and female in God's image. And then we're, we're, we're strangely told that that involves ruling and subduing the creation. And that's odd because we're not doing what the gods don't want us to do. Rather, we're doing what, God, what the God, what, in this case, the singular God does. And this is very interesting because in the Gilgamesh epic, we are definitely not in the image of the gods. Although, ironically so, we pattern our lives after the gods. In other words, we use chaos, or we could call it violence, to get our way. Um, and, and it's all hierarchy. Um, where here, it's about a god creating goodness and beauty and life, and then creating specific creatures to imitate him, rather than do what he, doesn't want, he himself doesn't want to do. There's a there's a lot there. there <laughs> mm. I'm trying to like keep all my thoughts straight as I as ask you a thousand questions at once. <laughs> um, okay, so back kind of with the the mm-hmm. science textbook idea of yeah, Genesis yeah, one and two yeah. being a science textbook, and mm-hmm. and I've heard before that we've we're very focused on the the matter or the substance of the creations, mm-hmm. like God physically. It, it's it's true. God physically made these things. Mm-hmm. But um, I've also heard that that's maybe not the main point of those of the things that are being created each mm-hmm. individual mm-hmm. day. That there's there's a function like that they would have thought about mm-hmm. the function of those creations rather than the physical items themselves. Yeah. for lack of a better word. Is, how, how would you explain that? Oh man, that's that's beautiful. You um you you might think of it like tactics and strategy. Tactics are how you respond in the moment to a situation. Uh, a strategy is a long-term plan. Strategies often answer, what's the point? Um, so in the same way, um, when I think of, of, of textbook history, it's usually not interested in whys unless it's, unless it's a fancy way of saying how. You know, why did Napoleon lose the Battle of Waterloo really means what facts, what events contributed to his loss. So it's a, it's, that's really a how question. Mm-hmm. Where um, I think that the questions asked um, by the Hebrews who wrote um, the, the, the creation story were more, what's the point of us? And what's the point of everything? In other words, they're, they're, trying, they're driving after meaning questions, why questions rather than logistics questions or, or tactical questions. In other words, what's God's strategy for creation? You know, where's it going? You know, and, and there's a lot of journey language in the Bible. And so in a lot of ways, this journey language shows up here. You know, what kind of journey are we on? You know, and, and how do we walk this journey? Which gets, I think, to what you're talking about function. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does it mean to walk on God's journey as, as creation? So if we walk through each mm-hmm. day of creation, what what would let's just start with mm-hmm. the first day? Yeah, um, what is what is God create? What sort of uh, 
journey is God starting us on or what sort of function is God creating mm-hmm. um, in that first day? Ah, th- this is cool. Um, there's a couple things. Uh, one is in verse one, it says, darkness was over the surface of the deep. So we know that darkness is an element of chaos. So one more time, God is boundarying chaos and creating order out of it. But even bigger, there's another clue. Um, it isn't for several more verses before God makes the sun, moon, and stars. So how does God make light and darkness when there ain't no sun, moon, and stars? I think the Bible is screaming at the top of its lungs, this is a, a symbol, not a Western-style you know, style textbook. Otherwise, what you have is just incoherence. So, okay, what happens if you create light and dark that keeps having over and over? You're creating days. You're creating time. Mm. So, verse 3, let there be light, God's creating time. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, if if today, if we were to write this, mm-hmm. we probably wouldn't think of, maybe we would, of, of light as, as basically the creation of time, Mm-mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's at least the first time I've read that. That's not what comes to mind for me, mm-hmm. for like, oh, God's, God's yeah. setting time in motion, basically. Yeah. Um, okay, so then on to day two, mm-hmm. there's this... <laughs> This this is kind of weird to me that mm-hmm. the vault between the waters mm-hmm. it, it, that separate water from water, mm-hmm. which is such a confusing yeah, yeah. thing. Um, what is what is that first of all, mm-hmm. and what's being created? You bet. Um, I'm actually going to bundle um, um, day two and half of day three. Okay. It seems that the poetry does that. So we have, at first, let there be a vault, or, or let there be a dome, it could be translated all kinds of ways, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault, and then God called the vault sky, and there was evening and morning on the second day. Um, and the, sometimes the word sky is translated heaven. Um, by the way, just a little FYI, heaven is an, a very old English word for sky. So when we when we say go to heaven, we mean go to the sky, and 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 there's all kinds of symbolic reasons we'll get to. Actually, I think in this conversation, um, so couple things people puzzled over this. Um, we know what the waters are below. That would be you know the sea, rivers, streams, all that stuff. Um, what are the waters above? Well, from in in the ancient Middle East, they re, they believed that there was some kind of layer of water above them because they saw blue in the water below and blue in the water above. Well, that's pretty easily explained. That's that's called clouds. Uh, you know, you say, wait, those are white puffy things. But if you ever taken off on a plane, do you notice there's a certain point in the atmosphere where clouds all generally, you know, this is where clouds are for the most part. And it looks like they're 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 on top of some sort of invisible barrier. Well I'm guessing that the ancient uh, Middle Eastern people observed there was a line. Oh my goodness, that's a barrier. God created that barrier. And so they called it the vault or the dome or in, in ancient, not ancient, but old English, the firmament. Um, and so, and then they named it the sky or the heavens. And that's where they get rain too as well. So I'm, they're, 
Yeah, water came from up there. Yeah, came from there. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, you know, uh, people sometimes look down and say, "Oh, that's so primitive." Everybody knows there isn't a water world up there. Yes, there is. <laughs> it's called clouds and moisture, um, and they just didn't get so detailed about it. And then it continues, and then God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear." And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters. He called the sea. And then it says, and God saw that it was good. And this is, and so he's looking at all this, and, and this is the first time we say, it says God saw that it was good. So we've got three things. God creates time, and then here God creates space, or spaces. So we've got the waters down below, we've got the land, and we've got the waters above, or the sky. So God has created you know, this order of space and this order of time, and he likes what he's done. And that's very different than the Gilgamesh epic, you know, where this is all an accident, a byproduct of a bunch of people fighting each other. And I've I've actually heard people explain that as the, the spaces are the God space and the human space, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, the, the as you said, the, the sky or the heavens, it's kind mm-hmm. of understood to be the God space, mm-hmm. and then the human space. Yep. Is that... Accurate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, the, so what's below is called the chaos space or the nowhere space, and then um, the space of the land is the human space, and then the space of the sky uh, is is the God space. Now, um, yeah, again, once again, people can dismiss that as, "Oh, that's very primitive. We know better." Not really. Uh, I can be in a one-story office building. And something can come across my desk that my boss needs to take care of, and I might say that I need to kick it upstairs. Well, everybody knows there's no upstairs, but up means to a place more important. Or, yeah, we can kick that downstairs. It's, it's none of our business. Well, we're all still on the same floor, but it means I might give it to someone of lower position in my company. So we still use up for important and down for less important. And then we're in the middle. But sometimes we want to be promoted upstairs. And we try to climb the ladder. Here all the up-down language that we still use. So they're not so stupid. They're describing three areas of importance. One thing that that I've heard people um, talk about is is the you know we we say the the sun is rising and setting mm-hmm. when you know it's it's not no. we're going around it right yep. but we mm-hmm. still use that language that's yeah. unscientific yeah in our daily and we and we know mm-hmm. what it means it's mm-hmm. rising in our sky and setting in our sky mm-hmm. even though that's not actually what's happening but, um but and, that kind of goes back to yeah. the the, mm-hmm. the the not addressing the scientific part of this exactly um so if we go into the next day mm-hmm. which you said it's kind of the end of the third day now because you've mm-hmm. kind of gone halfway through yeah um he's god's created um see or time seasons space mm-hmm What's he creating now? Ah, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants on trees, and the land that bear fruit and seed in it according to its various kinds. And then, so the land does that, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning on the third day. Now we're getting plants. And it's very interesting, the plants have a role, or you might say a function. So all of a sudden now, we're starting to get things that have a purpose, and, and this is this is interesting. So, very quickly, we're discovering creation is not accidental. 
God is orderly creating plants and trees that will bear fruit, and that fruit will then multiply them out. Um, and and the way it does it is a tree will bear bear other trees through its fruit. The 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 veg the, the the plants will will bear plants. So it's not random. It's very orderly. So we have orderly function coming from plants and trees. Um, once again, uh, we're, we're seeing everything. We started with the, the face of the deep, which was complete chaos. And each time that we get something created, it's at a higher function or a higher order. And does this have anything to do with then God almost providing food for humans as well? Well, we don't is know. That, is that not yet? We don't know that yet, but but it is setting right, a foundation. Humans, humans are not there yet, right? No, they aren't. <laughs> All and and this is interesting. This is where the literature gets fun. Okay, if if God has done this, what's the point? So we're sort of been set up like to say, okay, there's got to be more to the story because why would you do any of this? You know, we we only know partial function. We know that the function is to reproduce. And that each um, plant or tree reproduces itself, not something else. So we've got a picture of order and form and function, but we don't yet have purpose. Gotcha. The fourth day, mm-hmm. that's when we get the lights in the sky. Mm-hmm. And, and it actually says um, to mark sacred times, days, mm-hmm. and years. Mm-hmm. So it gives a purpose right in the creation yeah. mm-hmm. part of that. Yeah. So that, that one seems pretty straightforward. Is there anything else to that? Or is, is it more um, oh. more specific? Oh, there, there's, a, there's a bit more to it. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to just the nature of God and angels and demons and stuff. Got to have a little background intel to make sense of this. Um. Again, the ancient Middle Eastern nations believed, they, they tended to refer to the gods as the sky rulers. Um, and so the, pl- the god space was up, right? Mm-hmm. So that would make sense, right? Yep. And many of them literally believed that the sky rulers manifest as stars or as the sun, like Apollo, or as the moon. Um, and so then they would worship the sun, moon, and stars. Those were the deities, what we're getting here is, is, is we're going back to that, and, and this is not being entirely challenged, but it's been completely subverted. So God says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. He gives them a function. Now, what's happening here is, is the reader, if they're reading, is beginning to chuckle. So if I am a captive um, Israelite in Babylon, and I'm beginning to notice, oh, huh. Yeah, God's in charge of all these deities that the Babylonians worship, you know, and they and He's even given them a job. <laughs> and then He says He makes two great lights. Well, every every one of those cultures worshipped the sun and, and the moon. Turns out God is the one who made these deities, you know. And then um, He also made the stars. And notice that's that that little throwaway sentence. And then it says what they did. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and then God saw it was good. Israelites would have read that and somewhat agreed, oh, that's where God's messengers live. 
So instead of gods living there all by themselves, self-created and not, God and his angels lived there. So when they looked at the lights, they may not have literally believed that the stars were God's angels, but they knew that was the angel space or the God space. So there is a parallel between the Babylonian worldview of the deities all live up in the sky and then the Israelite worldview is God and his team live in the God space or the sky. Um, and again, I, I always shy away from the question when someone says, well, did they literally believe that God was up there in the atmosphere? And I start out with, A, these people are not stupid because this literature by itself is incredibly sophisticated. So I don't know whether this would be directly symbolic for an Israelite or not, but the way things are set up, I think they would have regarded it as symbolic because God creates light and darkness before he creates the agents of light and darkness. Mm-hmm. So the literature is already telling you that that you know movie camera history is not what's going on here. Yeah. So that would tell me that the Israelites in Babylon probably saw this as symbolic. Uh, let's move on to the fifth day. All right, here so we go, day five. The fifth day... Um, He's creating living creatures in the water, mm-hmm. birds that fly above. Um, those are the two things that he creates mm-hmm. on the fifth day, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. What's the What's the significance of that? What's What's the message? Oh, there's some fun stuff. Remember, he created the plants and the trees, the high and the low. So you have the high plants and the low plants, right? Well, now you have the high animals and the low animals. And um, and so you have the animals down below, and you have the animals up above. Just like you have the plants down below, and you have the trees up above. And 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 from a literary standpoint, these words are almost verbatim what was said about the plants and the trees. You know that they're to to reproduce after their own kind. And now, but this is the first time we get a blessing. So now God blesses them. I think I, I want to double check so I, I don't misrepresent yeah in in um, verses 9 through 13 about the vegetation um there's no blessing it's just that the vegetation just does what it does in other words it does god's intent but then when we talk about um the high and low creatures the flyers and the swimmers um there they're being blessed uh, and they're told be fruitful increase in number and fill the water and the sea, let the birds increase on the earth. And and, and 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 then it says, and there was evening and morning, and it was the fifth day. And before there, it says, and God thought it was good. He liked what he saw. And and so in this period of time, he made these. So we're getting the structure of high-low, high-low. Okay. And, Interesting. Okay, and, so why, yeah. why, why is this, why is God blessing this and not the plants? I'm sure somebody has thought of it. I don't know, okay. but I, I, it may be because we're now moving towards animals, which, you know, in other words, you know, legs and, 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 and hands or claws and, and eyes and nose, you know, they're it's, animate in other words. I've heard before that, um, that blood has, mm-hmm. is very significant to the ancient, mm-hmm. ancient, uh, Israel and ancient world. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's got something to do with life. Like we know that plants are alive. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're creating other life, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So, are the, so are the yeah, animals, yeah. but they lack the lifeblood. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there's something because you've been telling telling me about this is mm-hmm. 
all about order from chaos. It's from yeah, death to yeah. life. If that's the progression at all, mm-hmm. if the reflection of the, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd never noticed this before. Yeah. So, um, well, I think you're onto something. Um, we know there's a lot more subtlety to what I'm going to say, but roughly, um, plants don't move and animals do. Hence the word animal literally means animated things. Now we are, we also know that know that there are plants that do move and there are animals that don't, but with those exceptions, that's one distinction. The other is there's lifeblood. Now, once again, we could make analogous the sap in a plant, but again, blood usually in animals is red. So that's a distinction. And, and I think you're on that, that things that get, have life get blessings. And, and and the blessing is make more life, you know, and then also nourish it so that it flourishes. So the animals are given the blessing to make more life and make more good life. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen a little later. Yeah. So that, that was the fifth day. Now mm-hmm. we get into uh, the sixth day, which I think mm-hmm. is most, the most interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get uh, living creatures, um, livestock on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll we'll start there. Um, first of all, like why the distinction between water animals, sky animals, and I guess ground animals? Yeah. Well, that would go for the three spaces. Mm. So you know, because we because God creates three spaces. And um, then he creates um, inhabitants for the three spaces. Hmm. And so we've, we've gotten two of the three spaces, and now here comes space number three, which is the middle one. So I just mm-hmm. was kind of thinking of the, 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 the three spaces. Mm-hmm. If the three spaces are the, the, the ground, which is the human mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. the sky being the, the God space, mm-hmm. is the water... I mean, we started off with chaos waters, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That the waters of mm-hmm. of death mm-hmm. was the water area considered. You know, a, did it have a negative connotation? Was it a an evil place, or is that is that just taking this analogy too far? No, actually, again, I, I think you're in a, you're asking a really important and beautiful question. So, okay, um, again. Metaphorically, the waters are, are are the chaos space, even to Israelites who were alive at the time they were this was being written, uh, and so was the wilderness. But yet, God is invading the chaos space with life. Okay, so he so literally the act of creating you know fishies, um, you know, and whales and dolphins and whatnot. Um, he's invading the chaos. Gotcha, and, and with fairly high order animals. Yep. You know, and, and which is, is pretty amazing. So when we take a look now at this next day, you'll notice once again, we get, you know, domestic animals, then we get wild animals. There's the high-low again, like the trees and the plants, like the birds and the, and, and the fish. And, and then we get everything else, which I guess is like the, the creepy crawlies, you know, the spiders and, and all those sorts of things. And, um, and then once again, at uh, this point, he doesn't bless them, which is fascinating. Not sure why. Maybe it's just a literary thing where we're going to alternate stuff. Uh, but he makes them according to their kinds, and then, you know, and then he kind of stops. But it's very clear that he likes them. And God saw that that was good. Then he slows way down. 
let us make human beings, or literally, let us make earthlings or grounders. And, and that in Hebrew is Adam. So um, what's really important is Adam is nobody's first name unless somebody named him that way now. But our, the first humans were not named Adam. That's a type. That's a type. So if you, if they said if you asked the first humans what are you they'd say Adam, we're grounders, we're from the earth, because the word for earth or land or ground is Adamah. So um, and, and so God makes these these people from the land, and it says here this is crazy, to look like us in our image in our likeness. Notice it said twice. That's like yes you read right. Um, because this would startle anyone who is not a Hebrew, because that's not how humans were made in, in other creation myths. Humans are distinct from gods, and they're created to do what the gods don't want them to don't want themselves to do. And here, ooh, we're making someone just like us, you know, in our image, in our likeness. And this is also a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the second creation story, where we're going to see something just like us. Um, and so, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that are move along the ground. So, he's created these creatures to be just like him in our image, in our likeness, and I'll get to the hour in a second. And what does it mean to be just like God? Apparently, rule is part of it. Because God rules the universe, and so apparently we're going to rule the human space and to parts, the, the, I would say the limits of human space, the up space where the birds are, and the down space where um, the fish are. But then it's all repeated all over again. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he's created them. Now we've heard this four times. In our image, in our likeness, in his own image, in his image. But then all of a sudden, and this would have been shocking to the Babylonians, male, yep, female, what? He created them. So what it means to be Adam means to be both man and woman, and both man and woman have been created to rule and rule the way God rules so that they look like God. Whoa. Hmm. I mean, at this point, that's a hand grenade in the room. Yeah. So you can see that this is way more than let's just look at the mechanics of, 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 of how humans became this is looking at the point of humans, the value of humans, the purpose of humans, and the relationship humans have to their creator. Yep. Quick thing before we keep going is, what's all this us stuff? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Um, this has to do with the fact that God loves teamwork. And so God created other spiritual beings, which we call angels. And actually, angels is their job description. They're to be messengers, and, and even more than that. But but God created all these spiritual beings, and he is the spiritual being above all spiritual beings. And you can tell here, you can imagine him gathering his executive team around, you know, the C-suite, the divine C-suite, you know? And he says, look, gang, we're going to make human beings. I want to just slow down, and I want you to see this. This is going to be so uber cool. Everybody take a seat. Got your coffee? You know, got your Coke? Okay, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to make human beings that are going to look like us. And, and, and then over and over, he says it several times. And then if the, the narrator sort of then cuts in at verse 27, says, and if you didn't get it from that, let me repeat myself. You know, so 
it's this wild thing where God is super excited. He's bringing his team on in it to, to have them be there when he does it. And then God inspired the narrator to repeat the whole thing over again. And then it continues with the rhythm, and God blessed them, just like he did with the fish and the birds, and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There's another word, and rule over it. And, and those create questions. Okay, what does it mean to subdue and rule in the image of God? And then rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature on the ground. And then it continues. And then, now we're going to find purpose for trees and plants. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed with it. They will be yours for food. So now we know the purpose of vegetation. And all... And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground and everything that has a breath of life in it, there's another way to separate the vegetation from the animals. What breathes? I give every green plant for food. So we discover that plants are the life-giving source for everything that breathes. It's the goes back to that idea of the mm -hmm. ruach, the, mm -hmm. the God's spirit or breath that's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we see then in Genesis 2. Yeah, so, and even in Genesis 1, where he, it, literally his spirit, is, is, is the breath of God is over everything. And, and so part of it also to be in God's image is, is now you have a breath, you have a, you have a ruach. You know, again, it's not as defined as Genesis 2, but God's got a ruach, a breath, a spirit, and apparently humans and animals have a ruach. And the plants have been given to anything that's got a ruach, a breath, and a spirit. So now we now we know the differentiator, right? Yeah. But notice, now everything's got a purpose. And even plants and animals give life. I mean, plants give life to the animals, and the animals reproduce life. So we've got this big life-giving machine, where in, in the Babylonian creation story... Creation is a result of a life-taking event. So we discover from the beginning that in the Babylonian story, the gods are takers. You know, they take life from each other, and the result is creation, an accidental byproduct. And then they create human beings so that they don't have to do the things they don't want to do. So they take from human beings their time, their energy, and their life. So apparently the, the role of people in power is to take. Where here, we've got a God who's given, he's creating something in a beautiful, orderly way that is going to share in his breath, his spirit, his ruach, and then it's going to do what God does, which is give life. So all of creation in a certain way is created in God's image, but very specifically humans who are going to rule and subdue in God's image. And, and, and they're specifically going to be uniquely just like God. And that's kind of where, and then it finally says, God saw all that he was made. Now it doesn't say, and, and, and look, it was good. It says, and it was very good. So God's really happy with what he made. So to go back a little bit to uh -huh, uh -huh. Where, um, where it says, let us make mankind in our image. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now what you had just said was, kind of a couple minutes ago, was that God created these spiritual beings, the angels, mm -hmm. and he's 
talking to his team about mm-hmm. doing this. Yep. Uh-huh. That's something different than I than mm-hmm. I've heard before. Mm-hmm. I've heard read into that that that's you know Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, first question is, would that be an incorrect reading of it? Also, would the original audience have mm-hmm. read "Let us make mankind in our image" as monotheistic, as as mm-hmm. a single God, or would they have gone, you know, connected it somehow to the stars, mm-hmm. which were, you know, obviously lower mm-hmm. than this God that's being revealed in Genesis mm-hmm. one, but still a lower God, mm-hmm. right? Does that all make yep. sense? Mm-hmm. How did? How how would you respond to all that? How would you mm-hmm. how do you understand that? I'm going to unbundle it into two statements. Okay. The first one is a statement of Christian doctrine, which I believe completely true. So mm-hmm. that this isn't is from our vantage point where we have the New Testament, um, we can say with that added knowledge that the whole Trinity was at creation. Um and 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 so that that to me is is a settled truth statement that we Christians hold. Yep. Uh, and his angels were there too. That's using Christian language to describe the same thing. Now, how would the first readers have understood it? And this is where it gets crazy. Um, hang on. The generic term for any spiritual being, God, angel, demon, you name it, is God, little g God. Um, and the and the word is Elo or El. And so all spiritual beings are El or Eloa. Um, now, the plural for all of them is Elohim. And, by the way, um, the God of Israel's name is Yahweh. So Yahweh is an Elo or an El. It's a generic term. He's a spiritual being. And he made a bunch of other spiritual beings. And so he's also called Elohim, which literally means the God of all gods. It's plural. And so when we, refer, when we use the term El or Elo to refer to Yahweh, we say Elohim. And it's deliberately using the plural to indicate that he is above all of them. Just like in um, the kings and queens of England, um, when, they, um, when, we would refer, when they would speak, they'd use the plural. Um, and, and then we would speak of them using the plural. Um, you still see this in some of the European languages like German, that when you speak formally to a stranger or someone of higher status, you say t- you speak to them in the plural form. Hmm. And, and, and that has to do with nobility were addressed in the plural form. Okay. And so, hence, um, some people thought that this was the royal we, let us make. I think that's taking... Um, um, middle age what was the word I'm looking uh, medieval cultural norms and smashing them into a Middle Eastern um, piece of literature what I think makes more sense is that God gathers the the, all the Eloas um, together who are the angels and and he being the God of all gods and he says look we're going to make a bunch of human beings now And, and so but again from a Christian standpoint Father, Son and Holy Spirit get together with all the angels. I'm using Christian language to make sense of this. And and I believe that's what's going on. Okay. But the original reader would have read that the God of all gods gathers all the other little g-gods together, um, who are also called the malachim, the angels. That literally means the messengers. 
In other words, that's what those little G God's job description is. Um, and they're all excited to see what God's going to do at the crown of creation. And this is very interesting because remember, the, the pack of deities in the Babylonian creation story are at war with each other. You know, you've got Marduk's army of little g-gods, and you've got Tiamat's army of little g-gods, and they're going at it, and people are dying left and right. And finally, Tiamat's army is decimated to the point where, where Marduk can get at her and kill her. You know, so what's left of her, of her army ain't much, and then they're subdu- they are subjugated and then subsumed into, T- into Marduk's army. A lot of violence, a lot of hostility, right? Mm-hmm. In this picture, we also have a bunch of little g-gods, but they're gathered around in unity and harmony and anticipation and joy hmm. for the creation of something beautiful on purpose, for a purpose, to look like the god of all gods. Yeah. It's, it's, notice how, like you said, everything's being turned upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on a little bit more. Uh-huh. It's still, uh-huh. you know, it's it's to me, it's a little bit weird that how these chapters are broken up because the, mm-hmm. the first creation story in chapter one continues on into mm-hmm. chapter two verses mm-hmm. one, two, and three. Yeah. But that's when we get the seventh day word God rests. Mm-hmm. Um, now what, if anything, mm-hmm. now obviously he's resting from creation is mm-hmm. what it says. Mm-hmm. What is being done there? Oh, this what is being mm-hmm. created Mm-hmm. Without creation, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, so it doesn't mean God was tired and needed to take a break. Um, there's two big words that indicate wholeness in Scripture. And one is shalom, which we translate peace. And the other one is rest. And related to that is, is Sabbath. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts the two together, Sabbath, rest. And they, and they both connote wholeness, completeness, and goodness, and things as they should be. It's kind of, They're big words. And so what happens is on the seventh day, God finishes everything. It means it's as it should be. Nothing is unfinished. And so then God basically doesn't need to do anything else. Now, the word rest also means to move in. And if you were to look carefully at this, the, the way the story is also uh, organized is as if someone's building a house. And so they, they, they put things together, they, you know, they set the foundation, and then they build the woodwork, they put the roof on, and then all of a sudden, he, they, you know, God hires some employees to take care of the place, you know, and then God moves in. So is it a temple? Well, this is interesting. There is no word for temple in Hebrew. Um, but we know something's a temple if it's God's house. So, yes, it is a temple. Uh, but the language is somebody builds a house and moves in. And when God builds a house and moves in, it's called a temple in English. Um, but in the, language, in, in, in the language of Hebrew, and I believe in other languages, it's just the word for house. Hmm. So, uh, the English word temple literally means a God house. Okay. So, God built a God house. And then he moved in. The moved in matters because um, in most other uh, worldviews, the gods live away from here. They're up in the sky, you know, away. 
Um, we even have some remnants of that in Christianity uh, where we die and go off to heaven. That's actually not biblical. Um, the off to part. Yes, heaven is, is very biblical. It's just not off away. Um, but that's the way many religions think, is there's a big gulf between God and human beings. Where here, look what happens. God builds the all, creation. And then God moves in. His house is here. You know, that's so he almost moving in from the the three spaces that we just talked about, from mm-hmm. the God space into mm-hmm. the now yep. he's coming down to the Yeah, human he is now space. a ruler not only of it's the God the, space, but also the the earth space. Is it almost like foreshadowing the incarnation? Like in in some way, is that am I stretching that a little bit or not at all. In fact, I would reverse it. The incarnation mimics creation. Okay. Um and then we're promised the very end because um, the God space and the human space were separated by human rebellion. We're the ones who tried to throw God back up into his heaven. Of course, that was a dumb idea because we're human and he's God, so it didn't work. Um, and if you keep reading now the Old Testament, it's God trying to chase down human beings with his love and and and, and reunite heaven and earth. And we stupid human beings keep wanting to um, be gods ourselves and keep this as our own separate domain. And that's the tragedy. That's not as it should be. Um, what should be is that the God space and the human space are one space. And, and, and so here they are because he moves in. And then he blesses the seventh day, the day when everything is as it should be. And he sets it aside because on it, he moved into his house. So that says something. Again, if Marduk and Tiamat are far away, Yahweh is close up. And, 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 and that is just huge. And especially for an exiled people who wonder where their God has gone and does he care about them anymore or, or, or is he too weak to rescue them? What's being told to them in the story is, no, no, I'm right here and I've not lost control. In fact, I was the one who carried you here to rescue you from yourself. And I will even work through this empire that thinks that I'm a long ways away. And they're going to find out how close up I am. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself, becomes a god-fearer. You know, as we as we talk about this, I just mm-hmm. when it when it talks about God made the seventh day and he he made it he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Mm-hmm. I thought about our first conversation about baptism, mm-hmm. and that even goes into what we were talking about in the, the mm-hmm. first chapter, mm-hmm. where the chaos and death out of it comes life and mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. It's the almost the image of going down into in the waters of baptism and mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And you talked last time about mm-hmm. um, baptism being holy mm-hmm. because God's presence is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now the fact that he's moved in on the seventh mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. is that's how it's holy. Oh, this is crazy. Dude, you just exploded my mind. Okay. I mean, you have literally just blown it to shreds. I had never thought of it this way. Let me see. I'm going to try this out on you. Okay. Okay, so we're going to start with baptism, and then we're going to run it backwards. Mm -hmm. So in baptism, we go in and then come out, right? Yep. Uh, that's that was the norm in the first century. Sprinkling was kind of you know an adaptation because of Europeans and cold weather. Um, But you go from the Egypt of sin, death, and devil. That's the chaos place. That's the death place, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go into the waters and you come out into the land. You know, mm-hmm. the human space, but God's there with you. Yeah. You know, now let's go to the actual Exodus story. 
Egypt was the chaos place uh, that Pharaoh was hell-bent on discreating God's people by working them to death as slaves. Pharaoh looks an awful lot like Marduk, right? Yeah. You know, and then God delivers them through the chaos waters into the land, in this case, the wilderness, but he's getting them to the promised land, the human and God space. And he, by the way, accompanies them in the tabernacle. Now we get to creation. We have the chaos. Out of it comes the land. And then God builds everything, makes it fruitful, and then he moves in and accompanies his creation. Hmm. So all three things join together in what I would call metaphorical structure. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the coherence it, is mind blowing. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you just said a word, you said tabernacle there, which made me mm-hmm, think of. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's the the mobile temple, right? Yeah. So, and maybe this is a whole nother episode that we could go mm-hmm, through. But mm-hmm. is there any uh, correlation to um, the creation stories in the tabernacle? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the building of the tabernacle, mm-hmm. where God's then presence oh, is going to be, yeah, yeah. for Israel. You're right about it being a whole nother one, but we'll give a movie trailer for okay. it. Um, the temple in its architectural design was meant to show how Eden, which was the human and God space together, um, and then when humans rebelled, uh, then the God space, the God and human space got broken back into just human space, just God space, or at least that was human intent. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the gods of their own space and decide uh, for, on themselves what was good and what was evil, what should be separated and what shouldn't, which is what got happened in creation, what was separate. Well, the tabernacle means you can't drive God out that easily. Because it's, God set up a little condo right there, you know, he's got his little apartment right there, and one day he wants to reclaim the whole place as his house. Isn't that the coolest thing in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the God space never gets quite separated from the human space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's kind of move on to this next one mm-hmm. and in, in chapter 2, verse 4, where... You got another hour? <laughs> yeah, right, I know. Um I've heard it said before, argued, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that these two creation narratives mm-hmm. contradict each other. And I think it's mm-hmm. primarily around the order of creating yeah, yeah. humans and animals. Yep. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that? Because in in Genesis 2, mostly, mm-hmm. it's talking about um, humans, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it appears to be in different orders and yeah, different yeah. structure, and mm-hmm. it's... Is it a separate story? Is it a, how would you respond to that? And what do you think of that? Well, the the orders are different. Let's just acknowledge that. I mean, if you lined up line by line, you discover that different things happen at different times. Uh, Some people have attempted to harmonize that, but it it kind of looks silly and awkward and clunky. So my response to that would be nice try. Um, Next contestant. Um, if, again, we've talked about how the first creation story looks like poetry. could be even a song, or, or it could be a responsive reading in a, in a temple service. Where this looks like a story. It's a straight-line story. It, it, there's no repetition. It just keeps on going and going and going. So we have two different kinds of literature. That should tell us something. The other one, we saw places where the first creation story was in direct response to the Babylonian creation story. This isn't 
isn't addressing creation like that. So I believe God inspired this story from another person. And just from my research, the second creation story is the older of the two stories. Oh, okay. And the first story is is newer because it comes out of the exile. Um, there's all kinds of stories of who were the authors and all that. And, and they, to me, are interesting, but they don't matter near as much as what each story is doing. Um, and so I would say that the function is different, but then the big things are there's still common theme God's making everything. God makes it good. Um, I think also that God inspired a third person to edit these two stories. And and so in the first story, some questions are set up. And in the second story, these questions are answered. So there is unity between the two, but there's not uniformity. So like, what are those, what are those questions where you see that can you give me an example of what, what you see yeah. that, that are mm-hmm. kind of one setting up the other? Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the whole notion of being made in God's image. Um, we know that means to rule and subdue, but we don't know much else. We have some hints. It appears that God is a generous God and, and that he creates things he likes and he creates things to imitate him. But those are very broad strokes. We don't know the details of that at all. Well, in the second creation story, we start getting some detail. One is that here, the first thing is, is that God creates an earthling. Um, and, you know, it's often translated, God formed a man, which would imply in our language, a male. That's not what scripture says. It just says someone from the ground. We don't have distinction between male and female yet. So God creates an earthling. And, and, and then he does a bunch of other things. He gives him a, a job description. And the first one um, is, um, let me see if I can find it, and it takes a little bit. There we go, verse 15, where um, kind of after God creates the grounder, then God creates a bunch of other stuff. And then in this particular region, then he creates a garden inside. So we've got the wilderness in which God brings water, and and, 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 and and then it has the opportunity to do something, and then he plants stuff, and he creates animals. And then inside of all that, and this region is called Delight, or Eden, he creates a garden inside the region of Delight. So it's not the garden of Eden, it's the garden in Eden. And, and then he takes the human being and puts him in this special garden. Um, and again, this is temple language where we have chaos, and then we have land, and then we have a special place. Um, and in this space, which turns out to be the God space, he, he says that I want you to serve it. Uh, often it says puts the man in the garden to work it and take care of it. If we slow that down. It's to serve it and then watch over it and nourish it. And, and, and so all of a sudden, these words would be big words to the first readers, because this word serve is also to worship. It means to serve God, either in worship or in whatever way that God wants to be served. Hmm. And so we are all of a sudden apparently serving creation or the garden in the same way we serve God. And then the word take care of it is normally in the Old Testament associated with God. There's a psalm, he who shamars over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And that's the word here. So the first word is avad for worship, and the second word is shamar. 
So these, so this second word is what God does. So now we're getting a sense of what does it mean to rule and subdue in the image of God. Apparently, it means to watch over and take care of something. This hardly is the way the Babylonians would be ruling and subduing. They'd be bashing things into submission or other surrounding cultures. This is not directly addressing Babylonian culture. But the way people ruled and subdued in any other culture would be to bash stuff into submission. And, and, and so here we're to serve the creation, not bash it into submission. And then if you still don't get the point, we use the God word of watching over and caring for. Um, and then God commands you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat of the one of the knowledge of good and evil. And um, again, these become symbols. Uh, and we, we have to keep reading scripture to understand the depth of these symbols. But the first one is the symbol of, of God's wisdom and knowledge that he gives with generosity and also God's life. The second one becomes the symbol of humans' attempt to be God and humans' attempt to decide what good and evil is for themselves. I think those are probably topics we, um, mm-hmm. we do around the fall or something. Yep. That sounds like yep. a whole other episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, one quick thing is where it says, if you eat of that one, you shall surely die. It's not like, well, I'll get mad at you and kill you. It's like more like, don't eat that, it'll kill you. Mm-hmm. So God's saying, that'll kill you, not I will kill you. Mm. Um, and then, this is interesting, and you can tell the, the, the awareness of the first creation story, where for the first time, God says, it is not good. Everything else has been good up till now. This is not good. What is not good? That the man be alone. So it says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And traditional Western translation is, I will make an assistant suitable for him. But that's not what that word means. This word helper is a word, again, like shamar, that's used primarily for God. God is our, God is our azer in time of trouble. God is our help. God comes to our rescue. God's got our back in time of trouble. When it's used for humans, it's used for an army that comes alongside another army that's losing the war and helps them win the war. So in both cases, it's not about fetch me coffee, will you? It's about someone who's got your back, who who gets you out of trouble, you know, and and and, and so it's a much more linear relationship than what's traditionally been read. Is this, does this have anything to do with, um, I don't know what, like the, the creation or the, the priest, the priesthood mm-hmm. where it's, um, this person is serving, worshiping, taking care of, now we've talked about this being a temple narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that what Adam and Eve are, or Adam at this point is, is a, mm-hmm. a priest? Yep, and, and likewise, when the woman's created, she's a priest. Mm-hmm. Because um, as we keep going, we discover that the, the the things that have been assigned to the first human are also designed to, uh, assigned to the second human. Okay. And, and, and so all of a sudden, both male and female, in the image of God, that we discover they rule and subdue by serving, by watching over and caring for, and by having each other's back. I would say probably also having creation's back by nurturing it, you know, and, and, and so all of a sudden you get these themes. Now we're discovering also what God looks like. So we haven't been told what God looks like very much. Well, God is a servant. God is the one who watches over and cares for us. God is the ever-present help in time of trouble. God's got your back. God rescues you. 
So we, we get both a detailing out of what it means to be human, and at the same time, what it means to be God. It contrasts this with any other creation story. Suddenly, we discover God made people to be like him, and we discover that God loves serving. God loves caring for people, and God is rescuer. Now, why would you need rescuing now? Well, maybe not now, but you're gonna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is almost a foreshadowing that something is going to go wrong. Yeah. You know, and and you you can you can almost see a smirk in the first readers, like, yep, that's gonna ha- that's gonna come in handy, you know. So, so to me, that's huge. And then we and then we have the creation of the woman, and we haven't talked about that, but I'll just fast track that because this is an entirely different talk, you know. But it says that um, um, you know, that God, you know, created all these animals, you know, and then um, he had the human look and see if if he could name them. And within ancient Middle Eastern culture, if you could name it, you could rule over it. Okay. So this would be in God's image. Okay, can you rule over this? And now this at this point is what I would call a sucker punch, a literary sucker punch. And so he can't name anything that's subordinate to him. Well, he does name them, I'm sorry, but there's no suitable azare for him. None of them can perform the function that God performs. None of them are made in the image of God quite that way. Isn't that fascinating? So everything that's in a subordinate relationship to the first human is not suitable to be an azare or a helper or someone to have his back. And so then what does God do? Splits the human in half and makes two of them. Hmm. Now, then the Lord God uh, br- brings the woman to the man, and this is what the man says, gets ready to name. So we're thinking, aha, reinforcement of the male hierarchy like in the Babylonian story. Instead, he says this little poem. Now, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's a fancy way of saying just like me. And, and to use modern language, he, can, he deconstructs the whole possibility of a hierarchy. Mm. Because he can name all the animals, but he can't name her other than just like me. And so that's kind of an ironic thing, is the, quote, name he gives to the woman is not a name at all, but just, just like me. Yeah, and, and as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says, when, when God said it's not good that this human is not in community, and so he, makes, he, he takes the one and makes two out of them, and then he invites them later to become one again. Hmm. And, and then at that point it says they will become, you know, it says for that reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. But now it's one in community rather than one alone. And then I love this, it ends with, and the man and his wife both were both naked and they were not ashamed, which means, and that describes the very goodness and the rest of Genesis 1. It's kind of the similar thing, is everything is in harmony, there's no competition, there's no danger, everything's safe, um, and everything is as it should be, and so there's no reason for shame. Shame is where you cover up because there's danger. You know, or you feel like you're small and you're vulnerable, and and again, you can't feel that way if if there's no danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that that's given me a lot to think about. Ah. <laughs> um, we've hit just about everything of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got one more question before we kind of wrap things up. You bet. How does this creation narrative shape your theology moving forward? Like uniquely mm-hmm. shape your. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that, moving forward throughout the rest of the Bible? Oh, that's a huge question. I actually had to write it down to organize it um, because it's such a big question. Um, and I didn't want to go on like forever and ever, ever and ever and ever. So here's what I put down. I'll just read it. The creation story is the foundation for understanding God, creation, and humanity throughout all the scripture. If you, if you don't get the creation story down, things don't make sense. And not only that, the creation story finds its logical conclusion in Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection. In other words, they literally point to God when, when he shows up with skin on um, and, and restores all things. Now, here's what's cool, and, and we already kind of talked about this with baptism. Creation story also points the way forward to what restoration looks like when Christ comes again. We will experience an eternity of ever-increasing joy and flourishing through mutual service and the joyful celebration and worship of God. In other words, creation will be fully functioning the way it was. You know, we could say creation will now function on all eight cylinders. Mm. You know, and heaven and earth will come together, and as God designed it, finally God will move in for good. So, awesome. yeah, so yeah, creation is, you can already see all the pieces that are going to animate the grand narrative from Genesis 3 on through. Sounds good. I think that's a good place to end. Excellent. How's that? All right. Well, one last thing before we go, uh, we're going to be doing a Q&R episode, so a question and response episode here in a few weeks. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Richard um, on one of the topics, topics that we've discussed so far, please email me directly. Uh, my email is eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's E-R-I-C dot P-E-Y-T-O-N. Uh, and you can include the subject word with web. That would help me uh, uh, organize those. Um, and also, if you have any ideas for a future topic you'd like to be discussed on the show, you can uh, send those in the same way. So we look forward to hearing from you all and, and talking next time. <laughs>